Hi, Rachel. This is Joseph with an Arabic announcement for your podcast. هل سمعتم؟ لقد بدأ بودكاست Commonplace سلسلة حلقات جديدة عن الترجمة. Chitachula, the Commonplace بتوجد بارتكوش هوريتي Commonplace hat eine neue Serie über Übersetzung. Wirklich? Commonplace nach Night Novi Serio, Privat. Hey, we earned hey. Commonplace K is a Arlingstay a une Thursday on a translation tray. Hello, I'm Lisa. I'm from France and I speak French. As-tu entendu? Commonplace débute une nouvelle série sur les traductions. Ni tingso ko ma. Commonplace book series. Hi, my name is Anna and I'm from Italy. I'm gonna speak Romanian. Atzeuzit, commonplace, and chepek wonowa serie TV de traduccia. Okay, did you say commonplace? Commonplace. Uh, commonplace, because that's the English but I, word. I don't get it, what is commonplace? Commonplace is the name. My name is Gabriela, I'm from Rio, Brazil. And if you have a view, Commonplace, que está começando uma nova série de sobre tradução. Commonplace, uma Commonplace, is starting a new series on translation. Hello, I'm Rachel Zucker. Welcome to episode 60 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People, featuring poet and scholar Robin Cost Lewis. You just heard the great news, in several languages, that Commonplace is introducing a new special series of episodes on translation and poetry. Our first episode of this kind, with new music and a new format, will feature poet-interpreter-translator Rosa Alcala and will air in a few weeks. We're all wildly excited to share it with you. But today, we have an incredible conversation to share. Robin Cost Lewis is the author of Voyage of the Sable Venus, which won the National Book Award in 2015. Lewis's book Voyage is a triptych. The first and last sections are semi-autobiographical poems that follow the speaker through history and across the world. The central section, the long title poem, is made up entirely of titles of artworks spanning thousands of years that in some way comment on the black female body. Robin is currently the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles, a role we discuss in our conversation along with other important topics such as how and when to say no, erasure, research as devotion, facing mortality, and so much more. 
writer-in-residence at the University of Southern California, former Cave Canem Fellow and a Fellow of the Los Angeles Institute for the Humanities, Robin Lewis received her BA from Hampshire College, her MFA in Poetry from New York University, an MTS in Sanskrit and Comparative Religious Literature from the Divinity School at Harvard, and a PhD in Poetry and Visual Studies from the University of Southern California. Links to the texts and poets Robin and I discuss can be found on our website, commonpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Commonplace patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes Voyage of the Sable Venus by Robin Cost Lewis, courtesy of Knopf, The Complete Stories of Clarice Lispector, courtesy of New Directions, Best American Poetry 2018, courtesy of Scribner. Patrons will also get access to the syllabus of the course Robin took with me at NYU and a few poems based on the Matisse exhibition we talk about. If you already support Commonplace as a patron, thank you. If not, please consider going to our website or to patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast to become a patron. We have no institutional support and no advertising, but we care deeply about this project, which is political as well as aesthetic. Christine, Nicholas, Becca, Doreen, and I believe that there is great value in presenting intimate, candid conversations with artists and thinkers about their work and lives. We believe, especially at this troubled time, that art and artists have an essential role in depicting, protesting, and healing our world and working toward the collective liberation of marginalized people. We believe in language, in conversation, in laughter, in tears, in music, visual art, movement, and perhaps, above all, in listening. As we worked to produce this episode, several of us at Commonplace have also been working to get out the vote, or actively engaging with our democracy as part of a larger effort to dismantle white supremacy, the heteropatriarchy, and other systems of oppression. We invite you to act as well in ways that feel right for you. I'm recording this introduction a few days before the 2018 United States midterm elections, having no idea what the outcome will be, but knowing that no matter what, when you hear my voice, there will certainly be more work to do, here in the United States and all across the planet. Whoever we are and wherever we are from, Robin reminds us that we are from history, and we very much hope you'll join us in trying to imagine, embody, and enact a safer, more humane world at the interpersonal, institutional, national, and environmental levels so that all of us can thrive, so that not one of us has to live in fear. Robin was my student while she was earning her MFA at NYU. She was also my first MFA student to also be a mother. For so many reasons, it was an honor to have her in my classroom. I spoke to Robin on October 18, 2018, in a hotel room in Brooklyn. Robin was there to deliver her talk as part of a Cave Canem event. If you enjoyed this conversation, and I believe you will, I urge you to read Robin's book, to listen to or read her lectures and talks. It was a dream come true pleasure getting the chance to catch up with Robin, to hear about her work and life, and to spend time in the presence of her generous brilliance. Here is Robin Cost Lewis. Mm-hmm.
so lots of firsts here for me. Sure. Um, and I think I'm having like a little overwhelmed like fangirl. Shut up, about- Rachel. No, it's true. It's ridiculous. It's true. And I was thinking on the way here, like I don't know where to start um, because I want to talk about your new work. It's been such an honor spending time with you like in the past few weeks, like preparing for this huh. and listening to these like brilliant, brilliant lectures you've given and I want to talk about Voyage of the Sable Venus. I want to talk about the new essay that's in there. I want to talk about like all these things. You're you're the first person I've had on Commonplace who was in my class. Oh, that's I, great. I feel weird calling you my student because but I, I was your student. Yeah. I mean, everyone who's been on Commonplace is my teacher. Yeah. So, but I do want to talk about that and I want to talk about all those things. But this is the weirdest place that I want to start, which is... You do so many things, and I am so grateful that you said yes to me. Yeah, sure. But as the poet laureate of Los Angeles and a teacher and a writer and a student and a mother and a human being, (laughs) how are you managing all of this? How do you decide what to say no to? How do you say no Oh, it's such a good question. It's something I struggle with daily, if almost hourly, because I get a lot of requests because of the Poet Laureateship and because L.A. is such a dynamic city. And then I get my own, I have my own kind of requests that come through from my writing. And then I have my students who need me. And most of all, I have my son whose need I adore. Mm. Um, mostly. <laughs> most of the time. How do I say no or how do I decide what to say no to? I'll flip the switch if you don't mind. Sure. I try to figure out how do I say yes well. So I try to say yes to things that will have the most impact and do the most amount of work. I'm always looking for not shortcuts, but how to condense energy and my energy. So, for example, I mean, for this interview – any of my former teachers asked me to do. I just have a policy that I say yes, period. I was raised by Southern people from Louisiana, and the thing that I'm most grateful for about that is that we honor our elders and we honor people who have been kind to us. And, um, God, I'm getting emotional. And so um, you were my teacher, and there's no way I will ever say no to any of my teachers for anything, period. But also I said yes because I know that you have this fantastic audience of people who are earnest and serious and rigorous about literature and poetry. And that what's more delicious than a rigorous, serious audience, right? As opposed to some kind of popular magazine, not to put them down, because I say yes to them too, because I hope that in some way I can try to inspire readers or listeners toward poetry if they aren't already there. So it's usually that kind of thing. I I feel very serious about my role as a poet laureate as a position of public service. And so in any way that I can be of service to the public, I'm going to try to do that. The things I can't say yes to, though I would like to mostly, are, you know, I'll get requests for someone just to meet me and have me read their poems. Mm-hmm. I can't do that mm-hmm. um, as much as I would like. Um, so things like that. Or I really try to be 
strident about not putting myself in situations where I'm going to argue obvious things mm. like is racism bad or <laughs> does racism exist is whiteness you know all around us I, I just I, I can't it's that's a waste of my time um you know the same for sexism homophobia classism all the xenophobic things that are rearing their heads with great veracity right now I would rather fight that thing rather than argue about whether it exists. So what's sad to me, though, is I get lots of requests for those kinds of interviews or performances. You know, can you come and talk to us about whether or not whiteness is pervasive? The answer is no. Mm -hmm. You know, I will not do that. Um, Stuart Hall, great critical theorist, Stuart Hall had this great thing that he said, if you enter the debate, you validate the debate. And people sometimes misinterpret that to mean that you ignore the problem, but that's not what he meant. Um, I, I take what he what he said to mean that you know, pause and then create your own debate that is more powerful and more effective in terms of creating change. So that's what I'm trying to do. I love what you're saying, and um, it kind of seems so obvious, but it's not obvious at all. Right. People who are in positions of cultural production, so be it a radio station or television station or art gallery or museum or newspaper or whatever, um, often want artists to do their work for them. Mm -hmm. So they will ask me and other people to come and do some kind of event, um, but they haven't done their own homework. For me, coming from the African-American intellectual tradition that is centuries old, and then if you extend that to all of the African diaspora, right, also centuries old, it's insulting. Mm -hmm. And so my new way of dealing with those kinds of soft, quiet insults is to refer them to that tradition, mm -hmm. right? So if they ask me a question, I'll say, you know, this work has already been done, which it has, and very well and much better than anyone living right now is doing it. So I refer you to that tradition, and then we can move on to some other questions. And if you want me to come back, right, and you've prepared, we can talk. Mm -hmm. Do you see? Yeah, I love and, that. And, and, I, and I wish that we could somehow do some kind of African-American diasporic intellectual artist public service announcement that says, do your homework and then come back to us. Because they're making a great deal of money off of us, and they're fetishizing us, and it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really at the heart of my question, which I is, know it is. Yeah. since I started this podcast, I really imagined you on it. And yeah, I remember you wrote me and yeah, I was on tour and I couldn't from, say From yes. the beginning, you know, you, you were like, I mean, when Thank I, you. when I thought like, what do I want it to be? You right. know, you were there in my mental image of it. Um, but I also had this feeling of like, even though I value what I'm doing and I, sure. you know, I just thought I don't want to take one minute of your creative time, which is already so pressed upon. Mm -hmm. And you have been so generous with your intellect and with your creative work already. So people can find um, recordings, you know, that have been made of, you know, I just was listening to it and re-listening to it, the erasure lecture, you know, and it's just, <clears throat> it 
opens up erasure in ways that uh, are so deeply important and are so new and are so old and are so brilliant. So I didn't want to go over, I mean, even though I want like everybody to know about that, I want everybody to listen to like all the things I've listened to and I can refer them to those other things. And I did think to myself, like, I better think about, you know, what am I going to ask you that's worth your time? Well, uh, you but know? listen, this kind of piggybacks on the question you asked me before and, and my response about you being my teacher. The epilogue, you probably don't remember because you're such an incredible teacher and you had this way when I was your student of asking us to do things that guided me into terrain within my psyche mm. that helped me to articulate things I didn't know I needed articulating. So the epilogue, I actually started for you. Oh, right? The epilogue to Voyage of the Sable Venus. And then um, this huge project about the Arctic Mm -hmm. um, that I'm working on next that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. Um, There's a piece in it that just was in the Best American Poetry of 2018 that I wrote as an assignment for you. Mm. So it's not that I expect people to be as well-read as people who are African-Americanists, for mm-hmm. example. That's that's impossible. I do, however, expect people who approach African-Americanists to understand that there is a tradition of which they are wholly unaware mm-hmm. and that, therefore, they should approach with a different level of humility and respect. Yeah, It's not our job to make up for their poor education, right? We were also poorly educated, if Mm. not more so. The only difference between us is that we said, and therefore we're going to educate ourselves. And or therefore, once African-American studies became an actually bona fide study decades ago, we're going to go to those programs. We're going to get our PhD in those research areas. We're going to become faculty in those programs. And we're going to turn out and teach as many students as we possibly can, Mm -hmm. right? It's the ignorance about that that really makes me clutch my black pearls. I mean, it's interesting. It reminds me of this uh, tiny little thing about your uh, autoresponder on email. And it's not a tiny thing. It's a really deeply important thing, which is um, you refer people to other people if they want to contact right. you, and you say, um, due to the high volume of request for blurbs, um, I can only blurb books of uh, you know people that I know well in mm-hmm. these categories, and I will blurb um, books that are written in diasporic Absolutely. languages translated into English. I thought, yeah. I should go find those books. That's right. Um, you know, not has, having nothing to do with you blurbing them, but the fact of of that being a signal, mm-hmm. um, you know, a very clear communication and a signal to somebody who's emailing you, like, hey, uh, you know, this is what I'm willing to do. This is what I say yes to, and make sure you at least, as a first step, know what it is I say yes to and and that it exists right you know I had to put an auto reply on my email it hurt my I I I I suffered for months before I actually put that up Mm. because I felt bad right I want to be a good poetry sentence in the world I want to contribute and help people the way that I've been helped to and I do do that I've learned now to do it behind the scenes and quietly that's a 
again, how can I use my time well? How can I make the best impact? I've learned that being quiet, doing it quietly, actually I can get a lot more done. Mm -hmm. But that said, partly the reason why I did it is that it was usually men who would continue to email me, Mm. right? Even when the auto reply was less specific as it is now, you know, people would email me and email me and email me. And, you know, I was like, this is bullying. I've said no. Mm -hmm. Or, and then the part of me that's, you know, again, raised by Southern people with great manners, they would aim me, hey, what's up? Hey, yo, dog. People I've never met in Mm -hmm. my life. And the part of me that's a teacher, you know, I was like, you don't even know how to write a proper business letter. (laughs) Right. It's called a salutation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's also a part of me that I'm using my email as a way to teach. Yes. um, People, younger people especially, not to hate on the youth. I'm not. But about how important professionalism is in this field. If you really want to be, as you say you do, a serious poet, you at least have to know how to write somebody a cover letter. And I can't tell you, I mean, I was getting maybe 100 emails a day, literally. Um, And 75% of them was like, yo, yo, what's up? Mm -hmm. From people I've never met. Or, you know, I met you in a line, this and that, and I think you need to meet with me because I have something really important to say. But but it's a level of, of, of arrogance that in my world, the way I was raised by deeply Southern, Black, 1920s, 1930s parents, is that that's offensive. Mm-hmm. It's not just unprofessional, it's offensive. And so trying to figure out a way to not just be shady about it and push people away, because I never want to push people away. You know, there's this whole call-out tradition right now, and, oh, this got called out, and this got called out. But my thing is I want to call you in. Mm. I never want to call anyone out. I want to call everyone in. Mm -hmm. I want us all to be together. I really don't believe we're going to get anywhere apart. Mm -hmm. And so it's not about calling out. It's about trying to correct um, the framework for a conversation before I even enter into it. I love that. Um, okay, so let's go back to the poet laureate sure. and and what does the public service l- look like? And- well, for me, you know, so when a lot of people think of Los Angeles poetry, they don't think of Black poetry in Compton. Mm. They don't think of Chumash poetry and the history of First Nation and Indigenous people in that landmass. There was this uh, Chumash powwow last week. I was very sorry to have missed it because I wanted to go as the poet laureate Mm. to celebrate those oral hymns that they have been singing and dancing to for millennia on that landmass. And so for me, again, I feel like I'm always in the position of offering historical correctives. It's not something I enjoy, but it does feel necessary. And so for me, I've tried as a poet laureate to always speak about, first and foremost, that California used to be Mexico and that we live on the border. And that border is a very contentious site. And the history of that border is a history of colonialism and genocide. I tried every reading to say that. Mm -hmm. And that my agenda as poet laureate is to stop being so concerned with the contemporary Los Angeles poetry scene, though it is a very vibrant one and very interesting. And they're very extraordinary, even talented poets um, who are there writing. Um, But my agenda as poet laureate now is to draw attention to a larger context 
of Los Angeles poetry, beginning with the indigenous poetic traditions and moving forward. I'm also very interested in Los Angeles as a site of migrations. It is an incredibly diverse city, and you hear people say this all the time, but I don't think they really quite understand what that truly means. You have to drive around and you have to get away from the west side and the east side and go to where there are no bookstores whatsoever and never have been, right? Go to where there are no movie theaters and never have been. Go to where there are no, you know drama theaters and never have been, no art galleries, no libraries, go there and then listen to the poetry that is taking place because it is and it always has been. And so to ignore that to me just felt so very wrong. Mm. You know, I grew up with in the streets on Saturday mornings as a young girls, single digits, dancing in the intersections with all the men from different parts of the diaspora, with their congas out in the street, singing these beautiful, beautiful hymns, either Yoruba or, you know, some kind of, I don't know, great folk tale, just fantastic things. Mm. And you don't get that when you think about Los Angeles poetry. I'm also very aware that we're on the Pacific Rim and the Asian communities and the Asian countries and the Asian migrations that have taken place in that place, right, both in and out, the Japanese community, the internment camps, the the Filipino community, the Samoan community, I mean, the Korean communities, the Korean War, you can just, I mean, there's so many different types of Asians, my aunt, I have a whole part of my family that's Hawaiian and Chinese, right, and black, right, so here we are having big luau's on the beach with a roast pig and black people doing the hula, I mean, do you know, like, there's Mm -hmm. just so much about Los Angeles that has nothing, and I mean, absolutely nothing nothing to do with the poetic tradition of LA as we know it mm. right just to say the beat scene or the the work that was being done in Venice Beach all of it's very important very important but there's a whole world that we're missing by focusing on and agreeing to the idea. I mean, this is my, see, I'm listening to myself talking. I'm like, this is what I say about erasure. This is what I say about black history. Mm-hmm. This is what I say about South Asian diasporic history. This is what I say about Sanskrit history, right? I'm constantly trying to break these horribly limiting frames that we're putting around ourselves. We're agreeing to our own imprisonment, right? We have to think in vaster terms, you know, for ourselves and for our histories and for the people around us. So that's what being the poet laureate means to me. Mm. Um, I I don't have a lot of company Mm. in this thought. Um, I don't have any enemies about it, but I'm not doing the typical poet laureate chip is what I'm trying to say. You know, I'm spending time elsewhere. A lot of those events are not advertised. Mm -hmm. The other thing I do, which is very typical of poet laureates, and especially ones that have come before me, and I'm so honored to follow Luis Rodriguez and Eloise Klein-Healy, but one of the things I'm doing, like they did too, is I'm spending a lot of time with kids. Mm. And that's something that doesn't get, you know, broadcast very widely. Uh, I've been working with Get Lit, which is an incredible organization in Los Angeles for children from ages 11 to 18. Mm. You know, those kinds of things. It is really striking to me the idea that that offering a historical corrective, which is itself 
complex and nuanced and has to do with historical context and re-envisioning and um, communicating and finding lost links and lost histories is at the heart of everything that you do. I think so. um, In a very deep and in very important way. Thank you for noticing. Well, I also think that... It's also exhausting, Well, that's the thing. It's really, truly exhausting because it would be... You know, Danzig Senate had this great line. I think it was in Caucasia. It was. It was towards the end. And the father character, who's a very despairing black intellectual, um, former academic at Harvard, has this great moment where he says something like, imagine spending your whole life trying to correct a 400-year-old mistake. Right? That's the African-American literary tradition, partly, Right. But the part, but I'm tired of trying to correct that mistake. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, what I, where I'm trying to also, the bed that I'm trying to put my shoes under most of the time is to celebrate black culture at every moment. Right. You can only tell white folks that white folks are behaving badly for so long. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not willing to beat my head against that wall right. until it's bloody. I feel like my ancestors have done that and I'm not going to continue that tradition. I, I will fight the good fight to my death. Mm-hmm. But I am also going to turn around and look at my own culture and celebrate how extraordinary it is. Right. And there's so many archives all over the world that hold our bodies in them, sometimes literally, Mm -hmm. right? There are black bodies sliced into pages right now in archives in Chicago. There are black penises in formaldehyde at Harvard, right? I just can't waste my time speaking about how awful it is that white people, you know, colonize the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to... I want to I want to talk about what you are spending your time sure. doing and I want to talk about the celebration. I want to say maybe one more thing about the historical sure. corrective which is just to say that at least my experience of like really listening to you uh whether you're talking about erasure, whether you're talking about um visual artist, whether you're I'm desperate to hear about the work you're doing on the history of photography and, you know, okay, so we got to talk about that. (laughs) Um, But I think that, you know, you had this image that was very helpful to me in the erasure where you talked about both what's outside the frame and then also what is in the frame that you don't necessarily at first notice or, or pay attention to. And I think that, you know, it, it must be beyond exhausting. One of the things that happens is that if you're listening even at all closely to you, you start to apply that kind of vision and that kind of thinking to everything. So what's outside oh, the you. frame? What is accidentally mm-hmm. inside the frame? And, you know, we have to do our own work you know, to figure out, you know, the ways in which our teaching, our living, our reading, our writing, our, our, our connections to audience, you know, the neighborhoods that we go through, that we don't go through, that we live in, that we travel to, how we travel, whether we're tourists, whether we're citizens, whether we're, you know, all of those things, every single thing. And it is, it is terrifying and exhausting to start thinking in those terms, constantly questioning, wondering, how do I know what I know? What don't I know? Why? Who told me this? But I do believe that 
once you start, you don't stop. We can't go back. No. And everybody who comes in contact with your work, I think, is really changed. Oh, thank you, Rachel. So, I hope so. Oh. I mean, I don't know changed how, but I hope they, I hope people are moved. I mean, I was thinking about Voyage, and I'm truly going back into this Arctic material now for my next book. And, you know, you know this better than I do. You kind of take a long, deep sigh. Mm-hmm. Because you know you're going to be taken and occupied. Yeah. And so I'm kind of inching up to that door going, it's coming, I know. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to clean off all my what's on my plate in every way. Um, as much as I have, like, the total respect for my listeners, somebody might not have read your book. Sure. Um, so can you just very briefly say, sure. you know, particularly about the title poem and sure. the process and listener, you can know that there is a beautiful uh, essay that you can either listen to as a craft talk, earlier version of it, or um, that's in the newer version, the newer printing um, of the book. But yeah, because sure. I think that without knowing that, it's hard to yeah, fully sure. comprehend how deep that sigh needs to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I have such great NYU stories about that. But um, <laughs> uh, So Voyage of the Sable Venus is a long poem. It's 79 pages um, that tells the story experimentally so about the history of the black female figure in Western art. As such, it tells a story of Western art. The thing that I think most attracts people to the poem is that instead of using my own words, I use the titles of art, the artwork themselves mm-hmm. um, and catalog descrip- descriptions and kind of archival descriptions of the images and objects. And I basically smash them all together in ways so that most of the time, the reader doesn't know where one title ends and another title begins. And what ha- what came out of it, I guess, is this kind of um, deeply experimental and I hope deeply scathing experience of how Western art has treated all women, but specifically black women. Yeah, and I think that the... the oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. And it yeah. spans 38,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Just that small, <laughs> small fact. You know, the the responsibility to be comprehensive because you're, sure. you're dealing with sure. um, bodies and artists and uh, moments um, that have been left out yes. is really weighty. Yeah. And you There's were, a lot of research that needs to take place yeah. before I can start writing. So, but I'm realizing, though, Rachel, we yes. can have a little craft moment and yes. talk aesthetically as poets together. I'm realizing I'm not really interested in projects that don't require that of me. Mm-hmm. Like, I get something out of it, too. Research, that, in yeah. particular. So I'm really, I get exhausted by my projects, but damn it, they're deeply satisfying. Yeah. You know? So to go back 38,000 years and then move forward, that was luscious. It was horrific, the, the information. Mm-hmm. But the work itself, I felt like I was, you know the black virgin or the black goddess's little helper with my little pickaxe and my, you know, I don't know, metal pail going down into some mine mm-hmm. and digging through the layers of human history to find this very obvious jewel mm-hmm. that needed to be excavated and brought up to light. 
Like, Often with a baby strapped to right. you. <laughs> Let's right. not forget. That's true. Right? That's true. Yes. Often with a newborn strapped yeah. onto me, which was also very helpful. You know, mm-hmm. like that's what I was going to say earlier that I couldn't remember is that I really do think about my poems, I don't know about you, but I really do think of them often as gifts, Mm -hmm. especially if it's about history. Like, what offering can I make? Mm -hmm. What contribution can I make to this already very extraordinary tradition that can help us humanity along in terms of clearing out the kind of heinous cobwebs Mm -hmm. we have in our intellectual development about who each other is and um, what kinds of histories that have taken place because we're so unbelievably undereducated and what passes for education is propaganda for the most part. Um, you know, and that's been proven by almost everybody in every discipline, you know, how, how manufactured our education all is. But it's not to say that there isn't, you know, value in education. Clearly, I have three graduate degrees I love to learn. And there's a lot of truth there as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the rubric under which we all studied, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was also a very toxic environment where, you know, I have a former professor who was doing her PhD at Columbia in the 40s, black woman, brilliant genius. And she told me recently that she was kicked out because she got pregnant, not pregnant as a single person, which is still not okay, Mm -hmm. but pregnant by her husband. Mm -hmm. They rescinded their fellowship for her to finish her PhD in Irish literature, right? And so we cannot forget that while it's really lovely to fetishize the pursuit of knowledge, that that pursuit is historical and political and those institutions are historical and political. Absolutely. Okay, so the Arctic. The Arctic, speaking of the past. Yes. Um, So what about it? (laughs) Well, so when we met, um, you were working on these poems about the Arctic and about uh, Matthew Henson and... I mean, they were extraordinary, Thank and I and, and it was so interesting because I thought that's what you were working on. It was what I was. And working then this on. whole, I know. it was like it, it, it was like you had two pregnancies at the same time. I did. That's and, exactly what happened. And I just, I was like, wait, I didn't even know about that yes, baby. I know. I know. So I know. So have you come back to? I'm it? coming back to it. Yeah. Um and. It's really interesting to come back to a project you've had in a drawer for five years. At one point, I thought I had grown out of it and Mm -hmm. that I was just going to abandon it and let it go. Um, But so what I'm working on now is uh, a text and image uh, book project because of my great love for photography, as you know. Arctic poems are mostly about exploration, which is migration, Mm -hmm. right? The attempt not to die Mm -hmm. in a very white space. Mm -hmm. Sounds like my father's life completely, Mm. right? You know, trying to reach someplace north, some mythical north that you don't really know if it actually exists. Because at that point, when they first started Commander Perry and Matthew Henson, they didn't know, right? They didn't know what they were going to find. I mean, Europeans in the 18th and 19th century thought that once they got to the North Pole, there was going to be a hole, and they could crawl down into the hole, and there's going to be some tropical island underneath at the core of the earth. I mean, this is a level of stupidity we are dealing with, which is why I say we always have to interrogate the Western idea of knowledge production. Because the madness that (laughs) we inherited is as much a part of us 
than the kind of um, clarity. It goes hand in hand, mm-hmm. right? So the Arctic Project and these poems are all about, you know, animals migrating north, Matthew Henson trying to get there, Commander Perry being a total racist ass trying to get there. Most importantly, once I started writing the project at NYU, it became about Inuit history and the circumpolar diaspora. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that the Arctic had been colonized. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know. And so I spent a good year when I was at NYU as your student and Yosef Komenyaka's um, just reading Inuit history. And it was fascinating to me to come across PDF, say, of a sign that says, no Eskimos, no dogs. Right. Or that the the forced migration and the forced relocation of the Inuit from below the Arctic Circle to into the Arctic Circle where they were they were guaranteed to be wiped out. All because. Right. Same story. European powers, empires trying to find a way to travel across the North Pole so that they can have a shorter route for capitalism. Partly what I think what it will do if it succeeds is to, again, blow up the limited frame that we look both at African-American history and world history, Mm -hmm. human history, right? Because you can't think about the North Pole without thinking about the history of humankind. I mean, that's what, the more I let myself sit in Arctic research, I'm like, you have to go back 60,000 years, you must. Even if it's just for one poem, you must do it. Right. I mean- It would be a great disservice. My brain is exploding because I was thinking about the way in which the history of photography, as I learned it, sure. for example, um, had so much to do with Matthew Brady. Sure. Um, you know, sure. the uses being like the the war, sure. and then also the family keepsake, sure. which soldiers would bring sure. to war. Sure. Um, and and yet, what a total white centered view that is. Absolutely. And I had not thought about the history of migration and photography until it was mostly white people who were migrating That's right. and the Dust Bowl photographs, right. but, but right. coming back That's to right. the earlier parts. And so yeah. I, I, okay, so, so yeah. is your dissertation going to be published? I finished. Oh, um, someday if I ever get back to it, I think I have the Arctic book and then I have another book, My Erasures yes. that I did also at NYU. Like I did these three books while I was at NYU yeah. and I just haven't had time to get back to them. So I'm going to do the erasure book after this book. And then I'm going to do a nonfiction book about black photography. And I'm really excited to do it. Just about like the philosophy of photography and race and migration and the history of the technology, but the history of the technology kind of as an allegory for desire. You know, I still am trying to figure out which came first, the desire or the image right? Did we, you know, human beings have been making pictures since we were upright in caves. And that to me, I think is really where I'm coming from. Like, what is that about? Why do we need to see ourselves projected outside of our own bodies? And why do we need to share that projection with others of our kind? Is this a true fact or did I make this up? That Frederick Douglass is the most photographed absolutely man absolutely in, from he that also time had period. The most newspapers of any man at his time. Yeah, right. I mean, black man, right? So, yeah, no, he's extraordinary. He understood and on, culture and very and much on purpose. Oh God, yeah. yes, he was. Yeah. A, he was a genius. Yeah. in that way. Okay, Robin. Oh my God. Okay, <laughs> and so wait, the erasure book. Yes. is your own practice of sure. making erasures. Sure. 
And will it also include your critical thinking? The essay. Of, yeah, the essay. Of the okay. lecture that uh -huh. you've listened to. Oh, my God. Yes, okay. but it's going to include that, but it's also going to include a um, another essay that I've written about erasures, that the reason why I even began erasures was because I couldn't write, uh -huh. because I was very ill from my accident. Right. So I'm in bed, and, and you know, my hands and embrace, my my arms in a cast, my back, my neck is in a splint. I'm in traction. I can't move, but I can hold a pair of scissors. Mm. Right. And so um, that's when I really began. I didn't even know there was such a thing called erasure when I started doing this. I was just sick and depressed and in bed and I couldn't move. And so there's an essay about what does it mean as an artist to have the things the parts of your body that you most need to do the work that you most love taken away. Mm -hmm. So the left side of my brain was really badly damaged. That's the language center. Sanskrit got wiped away. I had to try to relearn it all. My left hand was really badly damaged. I still, it hurts to write, can write mm -hmm. 15 minutes longhand. That's it daily. Um, what does it mean to lose all these things that you so desperately need to do the thing that you most love? Um, and so there's an essay about that and how erasures, um, was a way to learn how to write again mm. before I started doing other forms of poetry. And again, I want to say, Rachel Zucker, it was really brought home when I went to see that Henri Matisse exhibit you had mm. us to go and see when I saw Matisse's cutouts, which I did not know before I went to go see it, that he did those because he was ill, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why this poem that's come out in Best American Poetry is all about him, to see him in bed with this long pole because he he's bedridden. And with a piece of charcoal on the end, and he's drawing on the walls. You know, that was me in a different way in my bed for many years. And erasure allowed me to break out of my bed. Mm -hmm. Even though I was still there, I could travel because I was using scissors to take just the most banal text. At that point, I was obsessed with using National Geographics. I have lots of poems from National Geographics. And just cutting them up in my bed and making them into other poems. Mm. So the other essay is about that. And maybe I'll merge the two. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But the other essay is like 100 pages long. And it's about brain damage and the history of neurology, which is a fascinating history. And, and how we miss diagnoses because we don't know how to look at the human body or because of bias in terms of gender and race. I found out quite recently a few years ago, everybody thinks I've been having a good time on tour, but I've actually been quite ill. Mm. And I just found out that they missed this very serious diagnosis that I now have to go back and re-kind of treat. Um, but it's also a, a wonderful, wonderful moment because I have answers to questions I've needed mm. answers to for dec over a decade now. So, Well, that was part of what I was going to ask you. I mean, I remember when we met, you were the first student who, and I I'm sorry that you had to, but I also appreciate because it's really changed my teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you said I'm limited in how much I'm allowed and can, and it's not healthy for me to look at screens too much. Sure. And so, you know, I thought I was being so helpful to everyone yes. to put everything online, and you yeah. know, everybody can look at it in their own time, and I you know, all this all stuff. About that, and I thought, oh, this is really important for me to think about. Yes. Um, you know, the health of students, you Absolutely. know, their physical health, their mental health, right. what kinds of, I don't love the word accommodation, but sure. what kinds of access yeah. um, people need. And, mm. and, but I, but I wanted to ask, you know, where you are in terms of the screen part now. Sure. And, well, you know, 
I go on and off of social media almost every day Mm -hmm. (laughs) because no one, in my opinion, I mean, should be looking at language through light. Mm. The alphabet should not be lit from behind or from within. Neurologically, that's just not good common sense. Interesting. Right. And I'm that, like most people with traumatic brain injury, we're little minor canaries. Like, you know, you don't feel it. But your brain does feel that. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes when I'm more symptomatic than others, I literally cannot look at a screen, period. Mm-hmm. And, and if I get too bad, I can't look at it for months on end. Um, I have typewriters that I use at home now, mm-hmm. and I write longhand a little bit. But as I said, my left hand is so badly damaged, I can't really do that too much. And so, you know, there are ways of working around it. But like voice recognition software, you still have to look at the screen. So that's deeply right. ironic, isn't it? Like I don't, whoever designed that, it's like you design that for people who can't type or who, for whom language is difficult or challenging, but then they have to look at a screen to correct it. So it's like kind of catch 22 any way you look. Um, I don't know. I think accommodations is an okay word. I understand your sensitivity to it and I really appreciate it. Um, I wish more people would understand that whole thing about so-called invisible disabilities. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's not invisible. You just pay closer attention. You could see it anytime you want. Anybody who knows me really well knows that I have brain damage. Anybody who spends a little bit of time with me knows that I have brain damage. It's impossible to miss it, you know? And so again, I mean, you know, I, I think I'm writing, you know, that whole adage about everybody writes about the same thing again and again. I think I'm writing about the same thing again and again. I'm talking about meticulous attention. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm writing about with regardless of subject every single time. Slow down and pay attention to the body in front of you. And equally important, slow down and pay attention to the body that you are inhabiting. Mm-hmm. It's actually not that difficult. Oh, it's, I mean, it's it both, is that difficult. It's like the most difficult thing and totally not that difficult No, I mean, all. I mean, my kind of work... Yeah. And the aesthetic behind it is actually quite simple. But it's so interesting because, um, you know, I know that for a while you were really first for a while in your recovery from um, this traumatic brain injury that you had to, that you turned to erasure. And then when you were sort of back to uh, mm-hmm. writing in a mm-hmm. more traditional sense, not that erasure isn't writing, right. that you were writing really only one line sure. a day. Sure. And yet... I associate you with the long form. Exactly. With the I long, know, right? comprehensive, know. you know, highly researched, yes. you know, reach back into history. Sure. Um, so I think that's fascinating too. Absolutely. I'm trying to rethink my own obsession with picking the hardest, most painful thing to write about. <laughs> and it's totally. It's, it's, damaging me mm-hmm. and even though mm-hmm. on the one hand i believe in it as important sure. for someone to do sure. do i have to keep Absolutely. doing this to myself oh my god and rachel how old are you 46 oh i'm 54 so i'm starting to wonder if that's a middle age kind of reassess that reassessment that one encounters that you start to think about do i have to do all of the work that i originally conceived when there's so many other people who could be helping or could be we could be working collectively together or right. you know that's my big dream I'm all, I will always be this kind of communal kind of worker bee and I just want to have a clearinghouse it's like here's a book topic go do it mm-hmm. here's a, here 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 are all these lost stories in these archives I can name a hundred right now 
here they are. Do you want them? Right. I certainly, I'm 54 and I have brain damage. God only knows how many more books I can get out of me before I have to like check out and not write anymore. I'm very serious right mm -hmm. now, right? So here are all these topics. I will never forget. I found, Lord God, it broke my heart. I found this moment of an interview with Matthew Henson. You know, Matthew Henson died destitute, as mm -hmm. do so many black heroes, mm -hmm. because we don't know how to take care of heroes in this country, right? And people who do extraordinary things, especially if they're black or, or in some way um, from an underrepresented group. Anyway, Matthew Henson gave this amazing interview, and he says to this guy as he walks through the door, he basically, I can't quote it verbatim right now, but he basically says, I'm so, and you know, he was very gracious, so well-mannered to the point where that is just like he should have had a charm school, that mm. kind of dapper gentleman. And he basically says in his very dapper gentleman rhetoric, you know, I'm very happy you are here, but forgive me, I'm very disappointed. You know, I so wish it was my own kind who was walking through that door. Mm. He says that. Mm. It's 19, it was the 1930s, I think, that the interview was given. And it broke oh, my heart when I read it, right? And it's not to say, listen, the people who have researched Matthew Henson the most and who are have celebrated him the most, of course, are African-American scholars now. Mm -hmm. But he's talking then about the fact that there were not that many African-American magazines for really good reasons, right? And because of Jim Crow and because of segregation, the Explorers, the Explorers Club here in New York that's still around treated him like dirt. You know, they didn't exhume his body and move him to Arlington Cemetery until the 70s. Mm. This man discovered the North Pole. And I mean, he discovered the North Pole, not Commander Perry. Mm. Commander Perry was delirious on a sledge. His toes had fallen off, right? He had gangrene. He didn't know where the hell he was. Matthew Henson and two Inuit men, who Matthew Henson was friends with, because Matthew Henson had actually decided, I'm going to live here for a year mm -hmm. before all of this, right? And learn this language and learn respect your culture and get to know you, right? He, they carried Perry. And then, you know, Perry gets all the acknowledgement and he doesn't give any of it to Henson. He didn't even speak to Henson for three weeks after they discovered the pole. They get back to the ship. The ship is beset. So they can't move for, I think, four months because they have to wait for the ice to thaw. And Commander Perry does not speak to Henson, the man who has saved his life again and again and again and who carried him to the North Pole the last two days. Okay, so but Robin... Would you feel relieved if someone else told this story? I or or do you feel like now it's, it's in my blood? Yeah, it got in you now. You, now, you, now, I, it's just Matthew Henson and me on a sledge, and I'm yeah. madly in love with him. Yeah, right. Um, but you know, there's great, great work being done about the Inuit history mm -hmm. and poetry and in other forms, and I'm really excited about that. You know, there's a photographer who I'm obsessed with right now. And he's in Greenland following um, this community that are trying to revive indigenous practices. I mean, that's where I live my life right now. You mm -hmm. know, I am in the Arctic most of the time in my mind. I'm just sitting here talking to you, but most of the time I'm in the Arctic now. And that's how I know I've been taken by a project right. and I can't look back. You know, there's no way. Do you feel that you need to be careful about who you fall in love with next? 
You mean in terms of projects? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to take care of who I fall in love with next in every way. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm an emerging writer. I know people don't think of me that way because I won the National Book Award, but I am a baby, baby, baby poet. And I think I'm learning about myself, you know, what, what kind of writer I am as I go. I mean, I know that you guys who have been writing books forever know that very well, but I'm just learning that about myself. And I think what I'm finding is I actually really like these deep, big bites. Uh-huh. I like to take big bites out of history like a wolf and go, you know, I like that and kind of shake it all around. Um, but I would really like to write a poem about a sunflower. I'm just not good at it. I, I'm not interested. It's not what I'm compelled to do. I wish I were. Trust me. Uh-huh. Trust me. I wish I were. I would love to write poetry that I didn't have to read 10 books to write one poem. That would be fantastic. What are some of the advantages to being what you call a baby writer at an older age? Oh, this is um, great. Yeah. Oh, I don't take myself as seriously as I would have in my 30s and 20s. And the operative word there is self, huh? Mm. Right? What the self meant to me in my 20s and 30s and what the self means to me now are two distinctly, vastly different things, right? The self in my 20s and 30s was my ego, but I didn't know that, (laughs) right? So I was constantly fetishizing my kind of experiences of myself as something grander than it was. Mm. And now in my 50s, you know, I care about myself only as far as I need to in order to have a a well-tended life and to treat my son and the people around me with great love. Mm. Other than that, I can give a shit less about this I that's inside of me. I mean, as a kind of persona, but as a piece of creation, right? As a fragment of life, I'm wholly obsessed with what it feels like to be alive. Not Robin, but everything else, Mm -hmm. my cells, my skin, my emotions. You know, I like to put my body under a slide and look at it, but not from any other point of view, but the point of view that here is this thing that is living. And the mystery is that we have no idea why the heart beats. We have no idea why the mind thinks. We have no idea why cells heal themselves and regenerate. We have no idea really about the Big Bang right? We don't know why we're here. We don't know how we got here. We truly don't fucking have a clue. That's fantastic. So as far as I can use my body and my experience of myself, big capital S, to think about those things, um, then I will do it. And I think that comes from getting older. And, you know, I have more than most of my friends confronted my mortality many, many, many times, mm-hmm. right? I have been sitting with death, holding death's hand many times. And, and that does something to you when you know emphatically at a young age that you're going to die and you might die tonight. Mm-hmm. That is a different experience to have. And so it makes me not really give a shit about some other things that I did when I was younger um, and so I don't really entertain that those kinds of subjects in my poems. Mm-hmm. It's just not interesting to me. Like, for example, love poems, ich, I'm bad at them, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, I'm bad at love. But third of all, you know, 
as an older person, you just start to know that being alive is so much more complex than love poems. It just is. And, and lovers and partners and children. Like, it's not just one thing. It's, it's everything together simultaneously. And so if I start writing, like, baby poems about a manicure, I mean, the other thing is, right, I am a deeply committed environmentalist. And so I'm not going to publish a book for just the fuck of it because I'm thinking about the trees that had to be killed in order to become paper in order for me to have the book printed. So why the hell? What kind of narcissist would I be to publish a book about fucking manicures, right? Just because I want to see my poems in print without thinking about, oh, and it took how many dead trees to do that, and we're on the brink of complete climate collapse. Yeah. Again, you know, I'm paying meticulous attention to my own life, and I don't want to participate in that economy that destroys the earth. So if I, if I publish a book, I mean, that was also very hard for me. I really had to sit with Voyage and go, is this really going to help? If it's not going to help, please let's not do it, right? Because how many trees died? I'm still not sure. I'm still not sure. Two things. One, I had a big epiphany in therapy this week. (laughs) Good for you. About love. I want to have a big epiphany about love and therapy. And (laughs) I think that in part based on what I got and didn't get from each of my parents, love to me is the feeling that you can be your authentic self with someone and that that person wants to spend time with you. With that authentic self. Yeah. Not just with you, but that authentic self, the real you. Yeah. Yeah, Totally. I mean, I think there's a third part of it that has to do with sex that I don't, (laughs) I just don't even really understand. I don't think anybody does, I haven't gotten to that epiphany yet. I think that might be in my 60s when I finally understand that. See, but that's what you just said answers the question you asked me earlier about what does it mean to be a new writer who's middle age, right? I know that some epiphanies take decades. Mm -hmm. I know that... You know, you can't just force something. In my 20s and 30s, I would be like, I'm going to figure this out tonight. And now I know, ha, 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 you go ahead and try. <laughs> you know, I'm too having middle age epiphanies that have taken me 10 years to, you know, explore and arrive at. So that's, in some ways, you just answer your own question. Yeah, except also, like, you're totally good at love because... No, I'm not. <laughs> well, I don't know what it's like to be in a relationship yeah. with you, um, but you have the most like rigorous attention to your subject matter. Yeah, sure. And to really kind of figuring out what's real. And that leads me to my second thing, which is, so um, I wrote these lectures that then became essays. And one of them's about my own history with photography and becoming a writer. Uh, And in that, and in this other one about wrongness, I really get into it with beauty. Uh-huh. I have a very like upset, like you use the word manicure, um, which also reminded me of this. Um, but your book is for beauty. Yeah. It's dedicated sure. to beauty. And sure. I have been wanting to ask you about that for so Great. long because Fantastic. I know that you must mean a different kind of beauty than I am very angry sure. with. Like Absolutely. I'm angry with purity. I know. I'm angry with the beauty industry or the idea that you should be 
other than kind of right. who you are or yeah no that is not uh, you know the all. whole history yeah. of violence i right. feel is so connected absolutely to the to absolutely. beauty absolutely it is who gets to say what's beauty that's exactly right who what's Speaking the photographers right exactly absolutely. yeah so, but can you say absolutely? Why, yeah. So, first of all, I should say that the lecture I'm giving tonight at Cavicanum is that epilogue that I wrote that I began in your class, and it's called "Boarding the Voyage," and it's about research as kind of devotion, mm-hmm. right? And I think that a lot of my research and a lot of my poems, when I when I'm writing, you know, I'm I'm offering the work up as love, as a devotional act, mm-hmm. um, always. And if I'm not doing that, the work does not go well, you know? Um, so in that epilogue, I talk a lot about the difference between beauty and pretty. And beauty is a dark, heinous, sublime, awe-inspiring thing. Mm-hmm. And pretty is a project of whiteness, you know? I say in the epilogue, pretty is a yes man, Right. right. Pretty is the concession to all of those things you just said you abhor and I abhor too. Pretty is a performance um, for the male gaze, right? Any gaze. Pretty is entertainment. I'm not interested in entertainment in any way. If my poems are entertaining, I want to burn them all. I'm not here to entertain anyone, right? I'm, I'm here to give my reader an experience. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So the beauty that the poem is dedicated to is about you know, again, re-kind of um, evoking uh, a world where love and strength and honesty can be the absolute ultimate kind of goal to which we aspire. And within that, in Voyage, particularly within the African diaspora, right? I mean, I talk about this in the essay, Again, that, you know, beauty is the greatest territory we've ever fought over, all Mm -hmm. human beings. Who gets to be cherished? That's it. That's beauty, right? And I'm insisting that, you know, more than nation states, more than empire, that's where the fight truly takes place and why art and image and picture and text is so very important and why we need these correctives. And so beauty for me is like black beauty. Like, I mean, it's those, it's those hard, hard, gorgeous, that hard, gorgeous knowledge that terrifies us to look at. It's the part of ourselves we don't want to know, but that are most extraordinary, mm-hmm. you know? So it's interesting because my editor and I, as the book was going to press, I was looking at a galley and the, the font that they had put beauty in was like light and italic. And I was like, no, 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 no. And at first I was just going to let it slide and uh-huh. go, Robin, just shut up. You're such a perfectionist. <laughs> God. I mean, I'm sure I drove everybody on the production team crazy. Um, but then I was like, you know, literally the day had come and gone. And I was like, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Please don't say anything. It's your first book. Don't be an ass. Right. And I was like, I have to say something. And so I, you know, wrote my editor said, Deb, I know I'm so sorry, but look at this font. Mm-hmm. The whole point of this book is that beauty is dark strong, iron, black, you know, unapologetic, (laughs) scary, (laughs) right? Not, la, 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 I'm going to put you in italics with this really nice little light font. Uh And she was like, I totally get it. And they they switched it. And I love how it looks now. It's like, you know, these lowercase, strong, black letters. And that's what beauty is to me. And I wanted the text to perform that. 
You see? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is beautiful. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah, it is. So little things like that that I was like, you know, that mattered so much, but it answers your question. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to read something? Sure, whatever yeah. you want. I'll I, do whatever you want. I want to read. I want you to read whatever. <laughs> you, I mean, I have Voyage Here, My with book's me. in my suitcase. Okay, good. So. Great. I mean, you know, maybe I'll just read Plantation because... I love that. It's been, even though it's been recorded, it's, I think it does a lot of work. Plantation. And then one morning we woke up embracing on the bare floor of a large cage. To keep you happy, I decorated the bars. Because you had never been hungry, I knew I could tell you the black side of my family owned slaves. I realize this is perhaps the one reason why I love you, because I told you this and you still wanted to kiss me. We laughed when I said, plantation. Fell into our chairs when I said, cane. There were fingers on the floor and the split bodies of women who'd been torn apart by horses during the Inquisition. You'd said, well, I'll be damned. Every now and then you'd change from a prancing black buck into a small high yellow girl, pigtailed, patent leather, eye-spinning gossamer, begging for egg salad and banana pudding. Or just as quickly you'd become the girl's mother, pulling yourself away from yourself. Because my whole head was covered with a heaving beehive, you thought I didn't notice. I noticed. I cried, honey. And then you were 14 and you had grown a glorious steel cock under your skirt. To brag, you rubbed yourself against me. Then your tongue was inside my mouth and I wanted to say, please ask me first, but it was your tongue, so who cared suddenly about your poor manners? We had books and a waterfall was falling in the corner. I didn't tell you. I couldn't remember what that thing was you said to me once, that tender thing you'd said I should never forget. The moment you said it, I forgot it. I wondered if you thought we were lost. We weren't lost. We were loss. And meanwhile, all I could think about were the innumerable ways I would have loved to have eaten you, how being devoured can make one cry. And I hoped you liked the fresh, pleasant taste of juiced cane. You pulled my pubic bone toward you. I didn't say it's still broken. I didn't tell you there's still this crack. It was sore, but I stayed silent because you were smiling. You said, the bars look pretty, baby. Then rubbed your hind legs up against me. Oh. I'm just so grateful um, to Kaveh Kanem for all the work that they do. And you're here um, to do this program with them. So I kind of wanted to give them a little space. I mean, we've talked about Kaveh Kanem so many times on the podcast, but there's never enough times, I feel like, to talk about them. So I don't know if you wanted to talk at all about your experience um, with the organization and, you know. Oh, I I mean... So personally, as a writer, it's heaven for me. It was heaven for me. First of all, I applied four times before I got in. Mm. That was heaven for me, too. The rejections were hard. They were lessons, you know, and I would, like, go back and read, I don't know how many, hundreds of, like, black poets from all over the world trying to 
see what it was about my work that was not strong enough. Mm. And that was such a great apprenticeship to be rejected four times, four years. I just kept trying, mm. you know. So when I finally got in, Lord, the joy, <laughs> the joy, the joy. And for me, what was so profound about that space was its safety mm. in every way. There was nothing that I brought to the table that was rejected, that was unnoticed, that was profound, right? Because, for example, there's a sonnet in my book that's uh, directly in response to and uses the language of Gwendolyn Brooks's Kitchenette Building. When I first workshopped that poem, not at Cave Canon, but another workshop, all white students, no one even recognize that it was a Gwendolyn Brooks redux. Wow. Anybody, I don't understand that, first of all, because I don't understand how everybody doesn't read Gwendolyn Brooks, but, you know, go figure. So, but it was interesting in that workshop where people said, well, it's okay because the poem stands alone. And I was like, but you don't understand. I don't want the poem to stand alone. Yeah. I want the poem to be wholly interdependent and in conversation with Gwendolyn Brooks. It's a homage to her. It's a gift to her. It's an offering I'm not interested in standing alone. And that's a really different way, I guess, to piggyback on your other question about what does it mean to be a new writer in an older woman's body? You know, I'm not interested in my book standing alone, not at all. You know, I'm trying to disappear. Elizabeth Alexander said that to me once, and I keep repeating it. I'm trying to disappear, hmm. you know. I'm trying to disappear. I don't, I'm not, I don't want, I don't want my book to stand alone. That's a very capitalist idea. Uh, of the individual that I wholly reject. I want my book to be in conversation mm -hmm. um, with not only my tradition, but all poetic traditions, right? Which is why there's such an internationalist kind of bend to my work. I mean, that's a question people don't ask me enough about, right? I mean, I remember at some point somebody, you know, once your books start to come out, you realize that so many people who review your books never read your books. Mm. And so there was some review that somebody did early on. She was talking about how... Um, she was African and she's just tired of reading African-American literature because it's so insular, right? Mm. And it doesn't deal with with African uh, countries and people outside of the U.S. And I was like, she didn't read my book. I mean, first of all, the second poem is set in India, right? The third poem is set in a Nairobi in a refugee camp for Somalis. I mean, like that kind of thing. And so I, I wish people would talk to me more about that because mm. it's very conscious. I did not put those those poems in there for one little reason. I put them in there for many, many reasons. And one was my insistence upon an internationalist experience of African-American culture, mm -hmm. right? I look at African-American culture as a part of an internationalist diaspora. And it's really easy within America to think about African-American culture as this very kind of domestic, insular experience and I just don't experience it that way. One of the reasons why I love Langston Hughes, there are many, but one of the reasons I love him so much was his anthology that he did with Arna Bontemps about Negro poetry. And, you know, you read the table of contents that people are coming from all over the world. And this is 1932, right? So you can't talk to me about the insular nature of African-American literature. It's like, no, we've never been that, you know, not ever. And how could we be? We come from all over. My family, I mean, part of my internationalist uh, kind of agenda is my family's from New Orleans, one of right. the biggest ports in the world. And historically, in terms of colonialism, one of the busiest ports. 
for so many different products coming into the United States. And to, to be born into a family that was in every way impacted upon by that historical kind of moment, um, it's really impossible to be an American that doesn't, that isn't aware how porous our borders are and how many people there are in the world. I also traveled a great deal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that means something to me. I grew up with my father telling me stories. My father's a World War II veteran. I grew up with him from the moment I could talk and listen to him talking about, you know, what did it mean for him to be you know, deployed in Normandy? Or what did it mean for him to be in Paris as a Yank? What did it mean mm. to be, you know, in Rheinhausen in Germany? What did it mean for him to have a German girlfriend when they were there to fight the Nazis? Do you know? I mean, at a very young age, I was, he made me aware of the world in a way. I mean, that's why in that poem, Black Joy, you know, that about, he put it in my hand, but you know, it's about the world that he puts the world into my hand and plucks out its intelligence. He taught me things very early on about the world that I don't think I would have, I never got from my, <laughs> never got from my education. Yeah. Do you know? Did you say in a talk that when you were growing up in Compton, that one in three black people Absolutely. were from Louisiana? Yes. There's a there's a and name for it. It's called the LALA migration. So Louisiana to Los Angeles. It's not so true anymore. Uh -huh. But people of my generation, it's very true. And we and we the moment we see each other, we hear our the cadence in our voices. I remember once Elizabeth Alexander and I were in Los Angeles together. I think it was around AWP one year, and we were hanging out with a bunch of black artists who are Los Angeles black artists. And Elizabeth asked me later, she's like, "What am I seeing here? You guys seem to have have something that we don't have." Huh. And I was like yeah we're southern and we're all from the gulf so mm. all those cadences all those jokes all of the diction it's a very specific kind of um great migration black culture that has taken root in la now you know you it's great i love what's happening to black la there's so many different kinds of black people there um really fantastic nigerian community, just really fantastic Kenyan community, really fantastic Cote d'Ivoire, Congo. There's just so many people from the Caribbean. Oh my God, Jamaica, mm -hmm. you know, Trinidad, lots of Trinidadians. And not to mention all the other communities from all over the world that I'm really excited about that, you know, have come to LA and have decided to settle in, I mean, come to the US and decide to settle in LA. It's really exciting. I mean, it's just so interesting. Like on some level, I'm picturing you I'm picturing like this strange visual diagram of overlapping multiple three-dimensional diasporas. Absolutely. And I do think like Absolutely. I hadn't really thought about this until this right. moment, but the way in which the question of who you are as being where you're from, how in order to answer that question, in part, you have had to go back to before recorded history. Exactly. Um, Which is why there's a quote by Jean Valentin at the beginning of my book about yeah. Lucy, right? The Australopithecus Africanus that was discovered when I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal for us. And right? history really is a, is a place in oh, that sense. I'm but from also, history. Yeah. I'm not from a country. I'm yeah. from history. Yeah. You know, that's my nation. That's uh, my nation, you know? Yeah, without doubt. <laughs> I wish I could be your student again. Oh, please. <laughs> Please. Wow. Please. Oh, my goodness. 
I'm really trying. I don't know about you, Rachel. How do you feel like with regard to your mortality? Maybe because I have multiple illnesses and, you know, I'm always in and out of hospitals. I'm always trying to figure out how best to use my time to bring it full circle to your first question, right? How not to waste my time. Yeah. And But that does not mean that I want to be this intense person that doesn't know how to have any fun. Uh, doesn't know how to engage in pleasurable acts and you know well, pleasurable things, so I'm trying to figure that out in a in a in a way that I think is generous both to myself and to my work. That said, though, I do feel like okay, really consciously think. You're 54. Let's say you have a good 15 more years left, brain wise. How do you want to spend that time? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Like, how can I be a good mother? a good poet laureate, a good human being, blah, 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 all those things, and do the work that I most want to do. Because I feel, I, I know this to be true, especially because I just have one book out and I have several book projects that are in the mix um, and other things I've contributed to, book projects that are out in the world. But how do I make the right decisions in terms of projects to do get me the best bang for my buck? I mean in terms of doing the best, putting the best work out into the world for the reader, not for me. But for the reader, like like if I say if I say to younger poets, look, you have only 15 years, you're 25, you just won whatever Pulitzer you just won because they're always winning these prizes, <laughs> these teenagers, right? Let's just say you only have 15 years. Let's just pretend that actual, actually the kind of popularity that has come to you so early on in your career is limited. Mm -hmm. What would you do? That's where I sit most days. And that's why I see my projects, I think, feel so condensed because I'm trying to pack a lot of work in a little space. Partly it's because I think that's the gift of poetry, right? What makes poetry so distinct, even as I write 79-page poems, right? That's still a lot of history. That's 38,000 years packed into 79 pages. So it's still the same process. And I think that's what, what makes poetry so distinct is that it can take a lot of time and a lot of information and put it into one line. That that's what's amazing to me that you can take I could take something that I wrote into it that I wrote as an essay and if I wanted to translate it into poetry, I can if I'm really and thoughtful and work on it for a while, I can make it into one line of some very strong metaphors and it will do the same work if not more. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Well, that, yeah, I think that is the essential question. Mm -hmm. And I do think that that is a question that really comes more with middle age yeah. and that feels... Why? Um, because you know you're going to die? Yeah, I think so. And I think that... Because the um, hair in your armpit is pretty gray. <laughs> or just like falling out. Totally. You, you never thought totally. you'd be like, I wish I had more hair. Totally. <laughs> I spent my whole life trying exactly, to get rid of it. Exactly. I mean, it is it is utterly fascinating, utterly you know, fascinating. or I mean, sorry to bring it up, but like, does anyone ever talk about menopause? No, exactly. What the hell? What the hell? Exactly. And I exactly. think, you know, to, Absolutely. to be... What well, does anyone really talk about women's bodies? No. And so to be at a moment where, you know, you're approaching or you've reached or you've passed right. the, you know your fertility, sure. um, that your body is really changing. Yes. And some people have this experience from beforehand with sure, illness sure. or, uh, or from trauma sure. that they've, that they've already sure. been disrupted sure. from like their relationship with their body. Sure. But I think that for everyone, 
you know, at some point age becomes this, this disruption. And I also think that like, you know, obviously our perception of time changes. And so as we get older, do you remember being bored and how long everything took and everything long felt now everything is two seconds. Absolutely, It's just two seconds. Time has changed. I just don't know. I think about this all the time. I I think about what kinds of books, you know, do I want to write? Do I even want to write any books? I often feel sick of it. I'm so sick of it. already. Is the teaching the place that, that has the most, you know, power right. and 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 effectiveness right. and community right. you know or what about my kids i mean i've spent so many years yeah. feeling guilty about the time that yeah. i've spent away from my yes. children so m- many minutes you know i mean i i went to mcdowell for the first time you know congratulations i'm so happy for i you. mean it was it was the first time in my adult life that i had wasn't cooking for right. multiple meals a day That's for multiple right. people right. and some people never have right. have any experience other than that that's right some people live alone their whole That's lives. Right. I, you know, I lived alone for two years in college and I haven't lived alone since then. Yeah. And so, you know, this question of being with the other, whether it's, you know, my kids or my students or, or in a, in a way the reader yes. um, versus I don't even know what it means, yes. you know, but yes. to, but to also feel this tremendous loneliness right. even inside exactly. of that absolutely and what kind of loneliness do you know i think the loneliness in a way has to do with i don't know how to put it into words like a i'm not quite sure i exist absolutely. unless there's yeah. the connection with mm-hmm. a witness mm-hmm. or a love mm-hmm. or a person yes. a listener yeah. a reader mm-hmm. And so it, it's partly about my own mortality. It's partly about like an existential despair sure. and the end of time, sure. and I'm, which I'm right it seems you, to be approaching yes, very I'm right rapidly. There with you. Exactly. You know, exactly. and I guess to come back to what you were saying earlier, I guess the thing is, it's ultimately this is I have no wisdom. This is not wisdom. It's this not is just a thought. Issue. You know, to be with with the world is also inherently to try to protect others and sure. to reduce harm. Right. And I think writing is both of those things, right? It's it's writing into that yes. into that relationship mm-hmm. and also finding a part of yourself that exists outside of not alone, mm-hmm. because I agree with you. I'm completely uninterested in mm-hmm. my books, my words, mm-hmm. my thoughts, my body, right. even right. really right. being standing alone. Sure. But some part of you that is outside of the cultural and personal expectations of what you give or do for others, yes. what, what your utility yes. is, yes. what you're good for. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I don't know. I try not to say what all writers do, but I think that for me, I also write out of loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it began, I began as a diarist. I kept a diary every day until I became a mother. Mm-hmm. I kept a diary every day. So what was that, like 35 years? 
Wow. I have volumes upon volumes upon volumes of diaries, and I'm burning them. <laughs> I just Are you say, really? Oh, hell yeah. Wow. I wasn't going to. And now I'm like, I'm totally burning them. Because um, you don't. Because I don't trust the law to protect me nor my son. Interesting. From publishing my diaries. Uh-huh. Right? There's a way in which that I do not appreciate that your property becomes a property of fantasies about art. Huh. say so there's all these writers archives all over the world i mean there's a part of me that i joke with henry save them and you can sell them if you ever need money uh-huh, right you uh-huh. know and i'll be dead but you know i don't know i'm just i'm just i'm just not interested in the individual i i truly am not not mm. as a kind of fetishistic place that we deem important mm. i i really feel like that's a capitalist creation the so individual the, but i totally agree yeah but what did the diary do for you? It helped me practice language, mm-hmm. right? And I started to notice, especially after my accident, that I would write and then suddenly I hear people talking about you breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Like you're just writing about like this happened, that happened. I don't really write about that kind of stuff. I write about things I'm thinking about. But then suddenly the language would t- change into metaphor and persona. And then I would switch from the diary to the page or the screen uh-huh. and then start writing. Um, but I think it helped me to practice language and to become comfortable with English and comfortable with myself speaking. That took decades, mm-hmm. right? I don't know if people understand that process, that there are a lot of women in the world who did not feel that they were entitled to have a voice or an opinion. It took me decades to learn that it was okay to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Of course, now I have many of them. And I get shamed for having them all the time. I cannot tell you. It's. I mean, I'm going to start keeping track. I'm going to start counting how many times people say to me, my, you're a very highly opinionated woman. What? You know, in this kind of paternalistic way. And I'm like, hell my fucking yes, I am, bitch. Back up. Thank God you are. Right. What do you, what do you expect me to be? And you, but they you still expect, they you expect st- you expect some people not to have opinions and others to have opinions. What is that about? Right. I and mean that's that, that's about right the colonization <laughs> of the mind. Yeah. Right. And and the and women's kind of intellectual capacity. What are you saying to me? What 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 human being does not have an opinion about something? No one. So suddenly, women are in this category. Where we're not allowed to think. Do you hear yourself telling me? critiquing the fact that I have an opinion. And, you know, I think deep down there's some part of me, that's why I did so much education. I have three graduate degrees. What dumbass does that? Partly it's because... It, and, and, you know, it's Sanskrit know. is one of them. It's I know. Not, it's like, it's I almost, know. That's almost like three... In- but part, part of it it's because, we were talking about this last night when I was at Princeton, um, there's no rehabilitation for intellectuals who have brain damage. Mm. So part of it was about me recovering and trying to re-engage all of the reading I had done and mm. just trying to refresh my mind because I couldn't remember. I still can't remember a lot of the stuff. And so it's a way in which I got to – It's it was kind of like rehab for mm. brain damaged individuals, you know, mm. intellectuals, right? But also, you know, there are very few people on the planet who can tell me that I don't have a right to my opinions now. Mm-hmm. Very few. And those people I admire greatly. I I find intelligence sexy as hell. And I, I love to find people who are who read more vastly than I do and know more things. That's entirely attractive and compelling. And all I want to do is sit and listen. So it isn't some ego thing from that point of view as it is more about I will not be put down. 
Can I tell you a super quick story? Sure. I love that. So last night, um, my father-in-law was visiting. And um, so first of all, it's like I'm only ever in totally male spaces. It's the weirdest freaking wow. thing. Wow. So I'm sitting at the dinner table with um, my husband, his father, and our three kids. And um, all boys. Yeah, all boys. My father-in-law, Jerry, is telling the story to my youngest son, Judah, of his own grandfather's leaving uh, Lithuania. Sure. And uh, it's a story that we've heard a lot, but he tells it to my son. And it basically, the Cossacks came and and they were uh, trying to rape his sister. And he intervened and they fought and the Cossack cut him with his sword on his arm. And he took his sister and he went back, they, you know, went back to the family. And the, they, there were many, many kids in the family. And the family said to him, you have to leave because you're marked and the Cossack is going to come back and find you. And so he went to this other town, you know, so he wouldn't endanger his family and he wouldn't be taken himself. And he fell in love with this woman. And my husband interrupted and he said, the most beautiful woman in the town. (laughs) And my father-in-law said, no, the smartest. Wow. And he said she could read and write and that his own grandfather dictated all these letters, asked her to write to his friends and his family. But he also could read and write. He was just pretending so that he could be close to her. Beautiful. Anyway, it was all these multi-level layers because my middle son said, well, that's not the story dad tells. Dad always says, so my husband, you know, that Papa Julius killed the Cossack. And, Fantastic. and that, first of all, that the sister was raped wow. and then he killed the Cossack sort of mm. as revenge. Mm. And my father-in-law was like, no, that's not, I don't think that's right. And then we got into this whole conversation about, you know, we, there's no way to know at this point which story is more accurate. Probably right. my father-in-law yeah, is more sure. accurate. But which, in your fantasy of who you are descended from, do you want to be descended from right. a murderer, right. even if it was justifiable? <laughs> yes. uh, is is murder ever justifiable? Yes. Yes. Um, do you want to be descended from one of many Jews who ran away and survived? Right. Um, yes, yeah. um, you know, with, with but who was like tough enough to to stand up to his sister, but ultimately like yeah. you know escaped, um, and. You know, so it was a really interesting conversation, but I kept thinking like, you know, Julius ended up marrying that woman who was the smartest one in the town and that, and I don't, no one ever talks about her. You know, here we are like going over this question that the most important question is, you know, did the, was the Cossack killed or not? And, and, you know, and I thought. And it didn't, I didn't even think about that until the next not. morning. Yes, exactly. I didn't even think about like. Because you're trained not to think yeah. about the women who are nameless and quiet, but the glue. Yeah. We're, we're, we're so indoctrinated not to think about and, those women. And that's and, why, partly why I wrote Voyage, the title poem. Mm-hmm. We're so indoctrinated by ideas about what knowledge is and theories of knowledge. We're so indoctrinated to think in one way, right? And not to think about the women who are 
you know, the whole, the whole kind of axis upon which the whole world spins. Right. We're constantly. And, and, you know, there's the hero version of this story of the powerful Julius, Mm -hmm. but it was her family who left and he went with them. Wow. And that, and his family who stayed were all killed. Her or her parents, you know, were the reason that there even are all these people sitting around a dinner table arguing over, you know, what happened. Exactly. Rachel, that's a fascinating story. Yeah. I don't even know why I told you that. I don't know, but I'm glad we did. (laughs) I mean, these are the kinds of things that I also wish that we would write more about. Mm -hmm. Not just that woman, but also how fragile life is, how fragile our survival is. Right. I mean, in terms of the great migration from Louisiana to Los Angeles, a great migration from the south to the north. There are so many stories like that. I love the stories about people who accidentally meet and accidentally fall mm-hmm. in love. And had that not happened. Right. This whole family would have been wiped out. Mm-hmm. This whole thing over here would have been right. Or this would never happen. You and I would not be sitting here yeah. had our families not made certain accidental mistakes along their way. Yeah. And that to me, and that that's partly why I'm so suspicious of knowledge and people who say they know exactly what's happening, they know exactly what they're doing, and they know exactly what poetry is, and they know exactly what a book should be, and they know exactly what a poem is. And I'm like, no, you don't. And actually, the most interesting parts about life are accidental. You brush up against a human being, and that human being's body or energy or smell is so profound that it changes the whole trajectory of your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Explain that to me. Then we can start talking about some shit. I'm like, we're talking about bullshit for most of the part. Like most of the things, unless you have, if, if you don't have a sense of awe at the mystery of life, I really don't find it very compelling because that's just ego having a, a really long ride on a very white horse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's what I love about being an older writer and, and, and getting my start late in life is I don't really trust people who tell me they know all there is to know about the world. That's impossible. And I damn sure don't trust anybody who tells me they know all there is to know about black culture. Right? We haven't even begun. I'm reading this biography of Clarice Lospector. You know mm-hmm, her? Mm-hmm. Right? And the, it's all about her family escaping and mm-hmm. the pogroms and... It's just so profound to think about that history when you look at her stories that were written in Portuguese and she was so staunchly, I'm Brazilian, I'm Brazilian, I'm Brazilian, right? But it's like, but you're Jewish. Mm-hmm. And you're, you have this escape narrative in your psyche and it's throughout all your work, right? This incredible suspicion of reality, right? If it only shows up that way, well, that's the best way it could possibly show up, Yeah. Do you know? I do. And I'm just having this like over it's I'm having such a clear mental image of that classroom in NYU. I can I know exactly where you're sitting. You're sitting <laughs> over here so to my much. left. It was a good group of poets in that class. It really was. It was Clar- uh, Christine LaRusso. Yeah. Maya Popo. Jin. I mean, who else? It was so many. Great I don't, it was a big there. class yeah, too. And I just I can I just I knew when I met you, 
that it was important, mm, but I, I didn't really fully know, you know, and, and who knows like what's going to come next. Exactly. Too. That's what I love. That, right. So I love that open door too. like, who knows? I remember yeah. when we had that reading at the Metropolitan Museum yeah. and I read that piece that you assigned for us. Mm -hmm. um, and it was also a big breakthrough because it was the first time I started writing and, and, and speaking openly about my accident mm. and how art and illness come together and um i don't know it was a very profound moment for me being your student rachel mm. like i i just want to reiterate again you gave me assignments that i would never have discovered uh you know as topics and themes that are now you know obsessions for me mm. that began with just like and do you remember we talked about it i was so annoyed when you said we had to go to the <laughs> um, matisse exhibit because i was like i'm a single mother in new york yes. i'm in fucking graduate school i live on a fourth floor yep. walk up i have to carry my kid's stroller the groceries my kid yep. like i don't have time to climb down the stairs find a babysitter at twenty dollars an hour and t go see this damn it show of Henri Matisse that has had hundreds of thousands of Henri Matisse shows before. Right. I was so annoyed with you. I will never forget it. I was like, I, I really, I can't do this. And I did it. And I was so grateful. I mean, I talk about that show mm. and this story. I tell my students all the time mm -hmm. about my annoyance with you. And mm -hmm. I had no idea that that show would. So for the people listening in, the show was one of the most extraordinary art exhibits I've ever seen. The curator showed Henri Matisse's drafts of and, and his drawings of the things that would become his most canonical paintings. So you might have a wall of like, I don't know, 30 sketches of one portrait and then the portrait of the painting right next to it. And or, you know, they had all of his cutouts or you know, whatever. And it was just amazing because it, it showed you, it was a celebration of obsession mm -hmm. and, of, and, and of endurance and of passion. And I felt so seen in that show. I felt so like, finally, finally, I found someone who was as insane as I am, right? Finally, I found someone whose work and life that's behind the scenes, not these canonical portraits like all of his Lorette paintings or whatever, but these sketches over here that he just sits and draws in bed again and again and again because he's sick, because he's lonely, because he's horny, because he's in love, because whatever, right? That changed my life I'll never forget that show I will never as long as I live I'll never forget that show you know I have a picture now of that photograph of Matisse in my studio mm. of him in his studio in bed with that pipe that's like 10 feet 15 feet long and the charcoal and he's drawing on the wall as inspiration mm -hmm. it's like and for me speaking of being an older writer who came to my work late in life for me it's such a you know reminder of never giving up, mm -hmm. no matter what condition the body is in. And not because I think it's interesting <laughs> to put my poetry in the world, but because it's interesting to write about the mystery that life is and how important it is for us to stay together no matter what. I mean, it, mean, it means the world to me to hear you talk about your experience of that moment. And, and I mean, I remember so strongly going to see the show and thinking, oh my God, I want to, you know, build assignments around this, and and yeah. um, this show is incredible, and it's it has, it's saying something about revision in ways Absolutely. that are totally, you know, yes. that I couldn't, you know, that they're so much more interesting in the, right. than the way we're sort of traditionally talking well, about celebrating it. revision. Yes, but joyously. But then, I mean, I don't know if you, I mean, this is in my timeline of this, 
my mother died the first week of that Oh my class. God, Rachel, that's right. And so I, I went house with you. back, yes, and I went back to the show and I couldn't bear it. Wow. And I thought, I have made a terrible mistake, you know, that I've included this in my syllabus because, you know, so much of it was about in the drafts to the next of what he took out. Yeah. And I had no tolerance for loss. Damn. And, you know, I knew that everyone was having their own experience, but in that grief, I, you know, and shock, I just couldn't even like really fully remember that other people were having other experiences. <laughs> um, well, and it's just, it's, like I mean, it was just like the craziest experience yeah. to be trying to kind of uh, move forward in space and time and do the things you're supposed to do sure. and, you know, not, you know, want to just like lie down forever, right. but then, you know, not, right. um, which it, which really does, you know, I mean, all of this, it really comes back to that first question about sometimes we really should say no. Like if you'd said to me, I'm not going to that show, I would have said, of course, that's fine. Yeah, I would never. I mean, I'm not the yeah. kind of teacher who would be no, like, of course what? No. You know, I'd be like, you do what you need no, to do. No. But that is so it's, you know, then we learn these lessons and sometimes they're Absolutely. the bad lessons, but then it's like, oh, I, that opened up all these things right. for me. So it makes but me we say yes say much no. more. No, right. we still have to say no, but we right. also still have to say yes. Yeah. You know, and that's even harder for me than saying no and trying to figure that out. Just now listening to you, I remember too at the Met that you came up to me after the reading and we were both leaning against the wall mm. and it was just, we were just being quiet together. Yeah. Just this profound silence I felt with you. You know, I mean, we don't talk enough about like, what does it mean when you're an older woman artist, older or middle age, and to lose a parent mm -hmm. or, you know, to be pregnant and lose parents mm -hmm. or to have children and lose parents or, you know, again, but see, talking to even this way, I'm like, see, here we are again talking about diaspora. Yeah. Right. There's all these new theories about diaspora as a verb, which I really appreciate. I don't think we have to like, I mean, you know, there's like a whole school of thought coming out about it. I don't know that it needs all that. Um, it just, it feels very obvious to mm -hmm. me is what I mean. Yeah, here we are talking about diaspora again. And and thank God, it's all I really want to talk about. Like, you know, and I mean now from, sure, from my own diaspora, from your own diaspora, but also just the human diaspora is tremendous. I mean, that's what I'm enjoying so much about reading this work about the six homo sapiens mm. and how one, only one survived. And, you know, talk about, diaspora and talk about the great 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 migration right from you know becoming bipedal to then you know traversing every land mass there was we were the first species to be on every land mass in the world and we achieved it not only that but we achieved it forty thousand years ago how wow how so I'm all into, we swam. I'm all into no. like the history of like the, the seas and maritime. What's your answer? We teleport it. No. <laughs> That's what my son would say. <laughs> it's not my answer. Yes. Um, I think it's because we were a species willing to take care of each other's children. Absolutely. So like wait, wait, all the wait, other wait. stuff. No, it's because of language. Well, because there's all this stuff about the fossil record. out of that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my God, Robin, we could talk forever. But I know. I, want I have you, to go. I want you to rest. I want you to do. <laughs> well, I have to go get some medicine. Yeah. I'm realizing okay. I'm getting okay. sick. Okay. That's what this Any is. Any chance you'll read one more thing of whatever Absolutely. it is? Absolutely. Okay, you ready? Reason. God goes out for whiskey Friday night. 
staggers back Monday morning empty-handed, no explanation. After three nights of not sleeping, three nights of listening for his footsteps, his mule sliding deftly under my bed, I stand at the stove, giving him my back, wearing the same tight, tacky dress, same slip, same seam stockings I'd put on before he left. He leans on the kitchen table, waiting for me to make him his coffee. I watch the water boil, refuse to turn around, wonder how to leave him. Woman, he slurs, when have I ever done what you wanted me to do? Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Rachel. This has been episode 60 of Commonplace with Robin Cost Lewis and me, your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by myself, Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, Becca DiGregorio, and Doreen Wang. Many thanks to Knopf, New Directions, and Scrivener, and all the presses that donate books to Commonplace. Thank you to everyone who sent in recordings for our translation trailer. The music you hear in the trailer is composed and performed by Nathaniel Wokstein. The music you're listening to now is by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Thank you, Daniel Schiffman, our advisor in all things. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. And to you, precious listener, be well, take care. Thank you for listening.